Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. It should go without saying, I am your host, Andrew Lewis, and today we are going to be the very last people to talk about AFL Trade Week. And I'm joined by resident Ichigo at that, saying expert of the AFL, Cameron McDonald. Good evening, Cameron. How you going, partner? I am well. The weather is fining up. There's a T20 match on the television, which I'm avoiding. All is well in the world. <laughs> so, Well, yeah, I was going to say, like, as... as 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 late to the party as we are here with uh, Trade Week Goss, you know, it gives the um, sporting people of Australia, sporting general public, something to do with this time while the cricket waits to heat up and the trade period is over and the football's long since over and we're just, we're waiting for drafts and all that kind of stuff. We just, you know, it's a, it's a sad time. I hope this podcast lifts the spirits for people. We are considerate because without us, there would be a whole thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people finding solace in horse racing, and that's that makes me sad. Yeah, but thanks to us, there will be zero attendees at the horse racing, <laughs> which is another way yeah. of saying what you just said. Yeah. So, yeah. to the crucifix with the Australasian Weight for Age Championship that is the cock plate on Saturday. We've got late, late, but not too late trade reacts. So, <laughs> strap in. That's it. This will so, be the hot take. The hot take. We're going to get right into it by discussing Cameron's favourite AFL team, the Geelong Football Club. Now, <laughs> this is what surprised me about all the reaction, all the analysis after trade week had ended. And it was all about how well Geelong had had done. Now, I know a week is a long time in politics. It's a long time in football. But I seem to remember something about them losing Tim Kelly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's no question that they're not going to be as good without him on field next year. Uh, they did about as well as they could out of that deal. I think, I think you know, I think... Wells gets an A-plus because of everything he's done over the years. And as much as I'm not a massive fan of Geelong, although I really don't have a problem with with their establishment, I'm starting to have an issue with Chris Scott overall. But yeah, I mean, Wells is a solid recruiter. If you're going to lose Tim Kelly, it's going to be pretty difficult to make yourself a better team on field in the immediate. But they strengthen their draft hands and they... They bring in Jack Stephen and Josh Jenkins, who uh, you know are solid AFL, are sort of solid AFL players. Well, I mean that's one way of describing Jack Stephen. We'll get to him in a minute. Yeah, I mean, I mean it was a little. It, there does seem to have been a lot of you know making the best out of a bad situation without ever describing the situation as bad. But Tim Kelly was probably in the ten best players in the league last season. He certainly was in the ten top 10 in the Brownlow medal, which is a, which is an award which doesn't recognise key position players. But they seemed... That that trade got got completed rather early, and a bit earlier than a lot of people, I think, were expecting. They got a pretty good trade hand, especially considering who they were trading with. And they've brought in, as you said, Stephen and Jenkins. But... It's hard to see them being better in 2020 
than they were in 2019. Their midfield is certainly older next year. They're going to have to get that youth. And I think the last Geelong bred and developed midfielder who got to elite status, and some people will probably think I'm being a little bit generous with this description of elite status, is Mitch Duncan. They brought yeah, in Dangerfield. Fine. They brought in Dangerfield, but they've got some nice players who've shown glimpses and tend to beat up on poor teams down at the Cattery, but don't really perform or move in. They're not moving Selwood out of the way, and that's what they need to do. Selwood needs to be playing on a half-forward flank or something like that at this stage, or a half-back flank, but they're not moving guys like Selwood out of the way. They, they've lost Kelly who's not super young for a guy who's only been in the competition two years, but it's still 24, 25, and they've essentially replaced him with a 30-year-old with you know all of the well-described issues that he had this year. Yes. Look, I'm with you. I don't think they're going to be as strong on the field. I do think they're getting older. You know, Classically, I write Geelong off of my peril because, you know, as we've spoken about on previous podcasts, they're still going to play a lot of games down at the Cattery. Still going to make the finals just about for free. There's still a lot of quality there. Some good years left in Dangerfield. And I do think the end will probably come quick for Joel Selwood. He's been a battering ram and was shown up a little out on the wing at times this season. I don't know, I don't know whether he's got another position or whether you just need to sort of play him on the ball until he stops. Yeah, it's, it's a tough one. It's, they're in an interesting position. For the first time, though, in quite a long time, maybe they get to hit up a few picks, you know, in the first and second rounds and, and, and bolster their position for for years to come, which hasn't been their draft and trading strategy for some years. Do you think they start a, do you think they start a transition with these draft picks by maybe looking at the players who are coming towards the end and with those first three or four picks drafting for need or do they just take best available and then deal with the next problem next? Probably probably the second version. Uh, I think that's been Geelong's way over the years. They're, yeah, they're, like, like you say, I think it's, it's an interesting time and you just you can never write that footy club off, really. Tim Kelly's a massive loss and I think another reason that, that Geelong has its supporters in all of this is that they did get the Tim Kelly deal done quickly. There's been an air of inevitability about all of that since last year's trade period. Tim Kelly, to his credit, played an outstanding year, even with all that hanging over him. And Geelong got it done quickly. They didn't make the poor guy stew about his future through the whole trade period. And you know, and West Coast, to their credit, came up with a real offer this year that got it done quickly. Uh, I, I, I think there's something to be applauded there because, you know, I think we'll get to this later, but the trade period goes on and on and on. And if the Kelly deal was waiting till the last day also, there would have been a couple of other ones that slipped through the cracks. Fair enough. West Coast had every incentive, I think, with the group they've got to get the trade done, use, considering they didn't use a player, use anything else at their disposal, considering they won last year's premiership, they were top six this year, and... As I said, they had every incentive to really reload, get this player in. and I mean, Westfield, West Coast midfield does look really scary with the addition of Kelly. They're talented and deep. Yeah, I completely 
agree. They're not going anywhere. And uh, you'd think that um, any motivation lost by winning a grand final, and it's very tough to go back to back, just ask Richmond, but any you know any motivation they had lost by winning it the previous year is I, surely comes back to them with uh, with this sort of incredible uh, top four spot they gave up right there in round 23 to Alistair Clarkson. They looked to be the only real challenger to Richmond on form. Uh, you know, they they sort of, they had a here and there kind of year, but their best football is still pretty scary. And then you throw, as you say, you throw Kelly into an already deep midfield and a midfield that uses the ball really beautifully. Kelly gets a bit of hard ball and, and Gaff gets a little bit more easy ball and uh, it makes everybody's job easier. And if you throw in next year, 18, 19, 20 elite games from Nick, Nat and Newey, that again puts them up to a new level because they didn't really get that this year. He was rounding into form by the the end of the season, but he was still only playing like 60, 65% game time. If they can get that up to 70, 75%, which is probably all they need because Hickey's more than a passable number two then that midfield is just going to get... It's, it's going to be easy for that midfield to dominate because of their depth, because of the quality of the ball their midfield is getting from the ruck. You know, every, there's really no aspect about it. You even had a guy like Hutchings. They've got the ability to sh- shut someone down. There's, it's really a, seems like a complete midfield. Yeah, I, I, I rate West Coast really highly. And, and Nat Nui, I mean, you're spot on. We just haven't seen enough of it. And it's, it's a real shame because the last couple of years and the ascent of the Ruckman and Grundy and Gorn, we should be talking about, uh, you know, three Ruckman who at their best are in the best 10 players in the comp, which is a pretty exciting time for Woody. Mm. Yeah, I was looking at the stats this week to, uh, you know, just make a few people happy, including myself. Two players this year played at least 10 games, averaged... 17 disposals, 28 hitouts, and five clearances at least. They were Brody Grundy and Rowan Marshall. Rowan Marshall. <laughs> Max Gone averaged 4.95 clearances per game, and Nat Newey only played, what, seven or eight games. So, in terms of the prototypical ruckman and the, pr- the production of, you know, getting their hands on the ball in a way that Dean Cox used to, getting their hands on the ball with the hitouts, but also getting clearances themselves. They're the four, because I think the other Ruckman in the league, you know, like Goldstein doesn't get the disposals and the clearances, and neither does Jared Witts. To have that yeah. complete ability, it's, it's, it's those four, really, statistically, this year, with Gorn, you know, you have to draw the line somewhere. I'm not, I'm not for a moment saying that Rowan Marshall had a better season than Max Gorn in 2019, and Nat knew he didn't play enough games, but statistically, they're the four from last season. Yeah. I'm with you there. And so question without notice, Hunter. What yep. is the... Just give me the St Kilda spine as you see it for round one next year. So give me full back, centre-half back, ruck, centre-half forward. As I see it or as I want it to be? Uh, either or is fine. Okay. I think it will be Howard, Carlisle, Membry, King... And Marshall in the ruck, I think it should be Howard Battle, Bembry King, and Marshall in the ruck with Ryder, you know, in a forward pocket or coming off the bench. 
it's interesting, isn't it? Because you wonder what what made Paddy Ryder want this move if it wasn't the number one ruck mantle, where I think his best football has been played. A couple of years ago, an All-Australian ruckman at Port Adelaide doing it by himself, and then Scott Lysette comes in and essentially robs him of the ability to do that. And I agree, Rowan Marshall is a, you know, a freak talent, but uh, all everyone who I've heard speak about it, uh, namely uh, particularly Nick Rewald actually, thought that he would have this kind of progression, but in front of the ball. There, there's going to be some temptation to actually take him out of a position he flourished so incredibly in to see what he's like at 10.5 ball. Well, I think it would give a good coach the flexibility to have the game come to them and see what the situation is. So you get through a quarter and you see that Marshall's, Marshall had those 28, 29 hit-outs a game, but he had a rather low hit-out to advantage percentage. So yep. Ryder is a classical tap ruckman. And, you know, most St Kilda supporters will know it only too well from his wonderful behind-the-back tap to Robbie Gray in 2017, which pretty much ruined the Richo era, just that moment. Yeah. But having that flexibility to see what, you know, who has, who's having the better run of the ruck, going 50-50, changing it up, there was such a drop-off in ruck production really over the course of probably the last four seasons under Richardson when he sort of persisted with Josh Bruce as the backup ruckman. Josh Bruce, honest as the day is long, and I'm, I'm not really happy that he's, that he's gone because of you know, his honesty and his ability to team spirit. Great contested mark, very solid set shot. You need those building blocks. But when he went into the ruck... You were basically conceding the hit out and hoping that there would be some sort of uh, situation where there was a break even where Bruce would be able to play almost as a fourth midfielder. And when that was able to happen, he was serviceable. But you're not going to have that drop off between Marshall and Ryder. Plus, if one of them can get going forward, it just gives you that flexibility. And I've seen. Over over a much longer period than the current St Kilda generation, I've seen you know Nick Rewalt run around as as a sole target in the forward line with five much smaller players. I've, I'm still a big fan of the three. You've got to have three marking targets in your forward line, and then at certain stages in your game, you're going to have two because of, because players have to go off for their rest. But if you have King and Ryder as key position marking targets, who are both well, they're both 198, 199 plus, plus Membry as a third marking forward, then, you know, it, it, it's better for everyone. The other thing you, you asked about, that is, I think Ryder might realise that it's better to be playing in the forward line for St Kilda than playing in the ruck for the Port Adelaide Magpies in the SANFL. Yeah. And secondly, he's Brad Hill's cousin. So I think they were sort of a job lot. I think he wanted to play with Brad Hill and... And that was the first domino to fall in terms of behind the scenes. I think once Brad it was clear that St Kilda and Brad Hill were, wanted each other, then I think the Paddy Ryder thing sort of fell into place. And despite the fact that we just uh, delisted Robbie Young, we've got, I think, six or seven Indigenous players on the team now. So that seems to be something that St Kilda is focusing on. I love that. I love that, to be honest. But it, the interesting thing is I would take both Paddy Ryder and Rowan Marshall forward over any of the other Ruckman listed. Matt Nui's never really impacted the scoreboard. 
and perhaps prefers to follow the pill around than, you know, then get in front of it and try and mark it. And Grundy and Gorn have both shown better marking ability behind the ball. So, interestingly, you might have a really nice one-two punch there no matter who's forward because I've seen Ryder kick a lot of goals. I do think he's a better number one ruck potentially if you can get him up and about and that Marshall is a really exciting footballer no matter where you stick him who might be the best forward of the lot so it's interesting time it is and I I think this is just a reflection that and it's funny it's really hard to solve because there's so few players who fit this category in the league and uh good to really make a difference but Mick Maltaus changed the game in 2010 pre-sub with Lee Brown and it was a huge part of the winning that premiership and then the sub came along the year after and everyone had to sort of you, you couldn't afford to have two Ruckman and not both of them were never on the ground together so you had to have a guy who played 25% of the game in the Ruck and the rest of the you know rest of his time on the ground somewhere else and I think all these really good teams have been searching for that guy to do that job and you know, you look at West Coast Premiership team, which didn't have Nick Natanyu. He had Lysette and Vardy, who played forward, but was able to hold his own in the ruck. It's another reason why Tom Hickey was attractive to them. And I don't know why, you know, St Kilda had a year where they played Hickey predominantly as a forward with Longer, and Hickey looked all right. But they didn't persist with that. So if you can get that Marshall Ryder thing working, then I think it's a huge advantage for the club, a club which, you know, desperately needs to solve scoring problems. Yes, but yeah, but it but has added some nice nice little pieces to begin that journey. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the trade period. I think, you know, there's always a, a discussion amongst the fans on the interwebs about how everyone fits in. You know, competition for spots is good. Some guys just don't make it when the competition becomes a little bit too eager and there's a lot of guys fighting for positions it tends to be the best guys who who make it so i've got no problem with you know a list that has kenton hind and parker and loney and maybe one or two other guys who can play as a as a small forward on the team i think that's i think that's healthy we'll find out who can really make it yeah i mean to be honest i don't think some of the guys you mentioned, Parker and Loney, and these guys haven't been, haven't had their hand firmly up at any point in their careers, really. Parker made a nice start to his career, but there's some real quality that's come into the footy club that, as you say, if those guys aren't AFL talent, well, then they're going to play twos. And we don't have to keep the experiment going. Mm. And you know what it was like, what it's like as a Collingwood supporter. It's a really nice feeling to start the season thinking, well, there's 32 blokes who I'd really be happy if any, if there's any combination of those 32 in the team. Yeah, when it gets hard to pick your 22, or when you, when you, you know, find yourself leaving players out that you really like, yeah, it's, uh, it's a nice problem to have. Yep. Just sticking with St Kilda and also connecting it back to Geelong, they did. Trade, and I just wanted your opinion on this because there's been a bit of chatter amongst against the aforementioned St Kilda supporters on the forums, and obviously we're you know nowhere near objective. Jack Stevens won four best and fairest at St Kilda, and he went for a pick in the fifties. 
with Geelong basically saying, well, any pick higher than that, and that's not where we value Jack Stephen. And St Kilda, to their credit as an organisation, had made it clear they were going to look after Jack Stephen. Did Geelong take advantage of that situation, do you think? And did, if so, was it unduly taking advantage of the situation? Oh, it might be too early to call that because I, I can't really speak to Jack Stevens' situation, his, his current mental health. I know that he was out of shape this year, um, but still showed glimpses of the great footballer he can be. It's, he's definitely, look, Jack Stevens at his best, that's an absolute steal getting him for 58. Perhaps Geelong feel that it comes with some baggage and they're completely unsure. Perhaps they felt if they put some weight on the baggage prior to getting him there and then, you know, felt that their premier facilities and being out of Melbourne a little bit was the shake-up that he needed. Um, And he comes out and dominates next year and and almost replaces Tim Kelly. Well, they're laughing. You know, there's so many ifs. But but the one thing, and you, you sort of mentioned it, you know, it's impossible for you lot to be objective on the Saints board. And I think at this time of year, every football supporter, it, the instinct is to go, is to overvalue everybody on your list tenfold uh, and undervalue anybody who the club is trying to bring in until they've got them. And then just to shout down everybody else who said he's not worth this, he's not worth that, because now he's in a Saints jumper. And it's like... Our hearts are so so invested in our club that the trade period, you know, is um, is crazy. Like some of the things you hear on trade radio um, <laughs> should should not be heard at all. And so I don't know. I'm I'm torn on it. I think fifty pick fifty eight. It's not high enough for Jack Stephen at his best, but Jack Stephen at his worst never steps out in, at that footy club. And I say at his worst in inverted commas, you know, if, if he can't get his mind right, well, then he can't play footy for anyone. Fair enough. I think, obviously, it, it's an emotional situation. I mean, he, Jack Stevens not just a player and, you know, I think it's not just pick 58 for a four-time best and fairest because, you know, you could you could say pick 58 would be unfair for Robert Harvey now and he's a four-time best and fairest. He's also, you know, in his late 40s. So, you know, it has to be on what you think the future value and what they're going to get out of it. I mean, is I don't think anyone in the club is being kept up at night over the fact they didn't get value for him. Obviously, St Kilda have been left with a an almost empty hand in the AFL draft. But on the other hand, Brad Hill, Dan Butler, Dougal Howard, uh, Paddy Ryder, and and uh, Zach Jones. So. Yes, and, and some, of those, some of those boys are young. It, you know, it remains, it's an interesting strategy by St Kilda because as much as I do think there's some serious quality coming into the club, it, 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 there's no draft hand to speak of. And so you're, you're banking on the, on the talent you've got and the talent you can bring in. And, and there's an element of, you know, it's really exciting to see if all these players nominate St Kilda. I think I text you in the middle of the... Uh, trade period just saying is St Kilda the only AFL club now because it just seemed like that every player was nominating St Kilda and it was happening over and over again. Yeah, it's, it, it is exciting and but there, there's an element of all our eggs are in this basket with this list. We're not, there's, we're not necessarily uh, keeping an eye on three and four years from now. We, we think we've got enough. A team that has 
commenced a rebuild of sorts. First year out of the finals in a long time. I think 10 years this year was the Sydney Swans. Their rebuild was going to be built around Joe Danaher. And Essendon didn't take pick five and nine, which I think Sydney were offering. They didn't have pick nine at the time, but were confident of being able to trade for pick nine. I think involving Carlton and Tom Papley. Obviously, it didn't happen, but it didn't need to happen to get Joe Danaher because Essendon said, we won't, we're not interested in pick five and nine. I think City then said, and then Essendon said, pick five and a player. From what we've, what we've heard, Essendon said, okay, as, as Sydney said, pick five and Tom Papley, and, and uh, Essendon said no. What are Essendon playing at here, considering that Joe Danaher is a restricted free agent at the end of next season, and unless Essendon actually, which would be you know admirable as far as I was concerned, to sort of see what would happen in that situation, but... They can match an offer for him next year, but if they don't match it, they will only get one draft pick. Whatever it is, it might be pick one, but it's only one draft pick, and it won't be pick one, but it would be one singular draft pick as compensation when they could have had two or three or a pick and a player this year, and, and they said no. Do you think that was wise? No. No, I don't. I think um, Adoro's the, the Chris Scott of the uh, fraternity. <laughs> He, he he really gets me, grinds my gears, as it were. No, I, I I don't like it, personally. I think five and nine was a good offer. Essendon is saying there's no... They weren't going to get a tall player with five and nine in this year's draft, and so therefore those pieces weren't interesting to them, and maybe they do have their eye on uh, a tall player who's uh, going to uh, be in next year's draft pool. Who knows what they're thinking... I know that they are definitely thinking that they can seduce Joe and and get him to enjoy the football club again, get him to enjoy the fishbowl, whatever you want to, however you want to term it. And they're backing themselves in. Call it arrogance. Call it call it bravery. Call it what you want. Um, that's clearly the avenue that they've taken. So they they believe he won't go to the top. Personally, I believe that he just flat out will. Well, I don't know if it's so much about the fishbowl. From what I understand, it's about he believes his injury has been mismanaged. And my experience tends to be when players come to that conclusion with a club, that's it. They've sort of cut the cord mentally, and it's just a matter of time. I didn't, uh, I didn't realize that. Has he come out and said as much? No, but it's been reported. I think I, I mean, I heard every every sort of. It sort of depends who you listen to, uh, doesn't it? I, I remember Tim Watson saying that he was keen to get, keen to try a fresh start in a new city. It's an interesting one. Who, who really knows? We get fed so much misinformation, but I didn't like it. I don't. I I thought Joe Danaher's uh, been a pretty good servant there. Yes, he's a father son, but um, as soon as someone, I'm sort of of the philosophy that if, if someone says I don't want to play for your footy club, they don't want to play there anymore. You know, they. Get your maximum value for them. Yeah, but every now and then there's a story like like Ryan O'Keefe who wanted to go to Hawthorne and Sydney kept him and then he ended up beating Hawthorne in the grand final and winning the North Smith. So, yeah, I think they can do that. But I think this is an easy one. This is a this is a non this is a breaking ball that doesn't break over the middle of the plate. But are Essendon overrating their list by keeping Danaher? Is that part of the problem here? I think they I think they are. 
but I think uh, I've overrated their list as well. Coming into coming into last season, I thought there there was something in the air down at that club, but they've been fairly middling for a long, long time. And potentially, I mean, look, I think Joe Danaher is a freak talent. If they can get 22 games out of him, even if they're Tim Kelly-style farewell games, he makes them considerably better. Um, we just haven't seen them play footy with him. And 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 that they don't have a meaningful, you know, key tall forward piece beyond him. Uh, you, you don't get that kind of output from Sean McKernan. And Stringer is is a really good footballer, but he's, he's not a key position player um, in the old. Joe can tear a game to shreds, you know. We haven't seen it for two years. If they can get the best out of him, well, you know, maybe... Maybe they can have a tilt. Maybe they can be a a bottom of the uh, bottom half of the eight type of side. But um, yeah, five and nine would have been a, a handy start to build the next tilt for Essendon, certainly. So they could have gone one way or the other, and I'm not convinced they really did either. Because my suspicion is that Joe will leave at the end. Look, two years ago, I think at the end of 2017, I would have taken Joe Denner over any key forward in the competition if I was starting, you know, the blank sheet of paper for a team. And could pick anyone. But he's played a handful of games over the last two years. They did play finals this year without really a contribution from him. So as much as I enjoy piling on Essendon, I sort of feel a reluctance to in this situation. But it's hard to get past. They're going to get less in 12 months' time when they fail to convince him to stay. and. Unless we get into a situation where, like what happens in European soccer, where players sign contracts in order to reward the club that has them, knowing full well that in the next 6 to 12 months they're going to leave. So that they, they're happy to protect their value for that purpose. Unless Danaher yeah, is going to sign a contract it. in the middle of the yeah, signs a contract in the middle of the year, and then just so Essendon have a stronger trade hand at the end of the year, on the proviso that he is still going to leave. So I think the best example of something like that, hypothesizing in this offseason, was uh, Gold Coast re-signing Ben King. Yes, there's a possibility there. And of course, in this trade period, um, Tom Papley had signed a big extension this year, as far as I understand it, and was held to that in the end. but. You know, uh, that, that there was it was that kind of deal as well. The King one's interesting because depending on which cap you have on, it's either an absolute coup for the Gold Coast, who are about to add uh, Raul and Anderson, um, who stood firm on Jack Martin um, and may lose him for nothing, may not. Finally said we're a club that's not going to take any messing and may have, may have sold uh, Ben King the idea of a future where Raul and Anderson are going to be keen to turn this club around. And do you want to be a part of it? Gold Coast have one more chance, I reckon, and it's it's about to begin. I'd agree with all that in terms of assessment of their trade period if they hadn't just given away Archie, because they just gave him away. I mean, it was it was like a future third and a future fourth or something like that. And um, it's I'm more happy for them to stand firm on you know whoever, and nothing would please me more than Carlton 
thinking that they had that ability to just walk him to the preseason draft so they could hold firm. Discovering they don't have the money and the salary cap to price him out of the market and him getting drafted by Melbourne. Because <laughs> that's the way it's supposed to work. If, if, if that's not how it works, don't have the preseason draft. You know, just find a different way. You know, you replace it with arbitration, basically. So you would have to, you know, an independent, independent arbiter would come in and basically decide what a points draft value is for Jack Martin and Carlton would just draft Jack Martin like they would draft an academy kid or a father-son kid. That's interesting. Mm. But, Don't mind. It, but, but then again, you know, I mean, we, we can talk about draft changes the other time, but, you know, if I start get going on, you know, father-son academies, I might not be finished by the end of October. Yeah, you don't like it, do you? I, I'm not. I'm definitely not as firm. I academies. I mean, I think they've got a little bit weird. No question. Collingwood having access to Isaac Quainall last year is one example where you just go, why? You know, there's no there's no obvious reason that we would be linked to that zone, or that anyone necessarily would be linked to some of the weird zones that are going on um, beyond maybe Gold Coast and potentially GWS, but yeah, I, I've i got a soft spot for the father-son. I don't know. You guys have a history with it. It's it's worked for Collingwood. I mean, the cloaks and he's it's sure. Worked in, it's worked in some examples and it hasn't in others, but there's still something mm. really nice about watching uh, Gavin Brown's boys and Peter Dacos's boys run around in black and white, even if they have, mm. you know, middling careers and, you know, it remains to be seen. You know, Josh Dacos could easily be cut. Callum Brown appears to be establishing himself. His brother, they're talking his brother up. They're talking little Nick Dacos up for 2021. You know, it doesn't It doesn't always work out. And they don't always finish at your club as 300-game, uh, you know, multiple premiership players. But I don't know. There's just something about it. And and I, I, would, I for one, would be loath to see it go. They can... They can meddle with it again if they want to, but I think it's just there's something about it that it's one of the few things that sort of takes me back to the suburban footy vibe of like my dad played here and I'm going to play here too. I mean, fair enough. I can I can appreciate the romanticism of it. Unfortunately, due to dumb luck, I've never really felt it. You know, uh, ever since father sons had to be drafted rather than just recruited, St Kilda have drafted two father-sons, David Sirikowski and Bailey Rice, who we just delisted. So it hasn't, it hasn't been an option for us. Danny Frawley, who obviously uh, just uh, passed away, had only daughters. I think Tony Lockett's only got daughters. Nathan Burke's only got daughters. It's it's luck. And I just feel like if you if your champions don't go on to sire sons, you, you don't have access to this. And we've talked about Joe Danaher. Everyone knew that Joe Danaher was the best player in the 2012 draft. And GWS were just, I think they had just had their first season, they won two games, and they had had, I think, just about the lowest percentage just about since university played. And they had no access to Danaher. I don't feel sorry for GWS because they have a bunch of, they have access to a bunch of academy kids from the Southern River Arena of New South Wales, which is footy territory. Half of these academy kids go to school here in Ballarat at St. Pat's to go and play football like Jacob Hopper. He's not 
I can understand Sydney with Heaney and Mills. Those are Heaney was from Newcastle. Newcastle is an is an Australian rules free zone. He would not have played. He would have played a different sport if not for the academy. So I can I can sort of appreciate that the, the hometown hero trying to build the game. That's almost tolerable as far as I'm concerned. But it's just it's it's just I think it perverts the draft and makes it unfair when the worst team should have the best access to the best talent and then. You know, if they're like the Gold Coast at the moment, they screw it up. Once they get the talent up there, then there's not much you can do about that. But that's my rant. Yeah, I'm with you. I wonder if um, if the shoe was on the other foot, perhaps. You know, again, and it's it's that overarching thing of is is that is that a St Kilda opinion or is that you know a generic football opinion? And if they if, I, I, um, I, I, could St Kilda have the the unbeatable. Um, AFLW team with all of those incredible father daughters. Well, I guess I mean I would hope that I would think exactly the same way if the shoe was on the other foot. But on the other hand, I probably would have seen a St Kilda premiership in my lifetime, and I'd, I'd probably look I'd probably view the world very differently anyway. Um, so here's part of the problem I have with how clubs approach trade week. And I don't think this used to happen when Trade Week happened away from the media spotlight and there wasn't Trade Radio, the great the great Craig Hutchison legacy of Trade Radio. And that is teams have to they have to win the PR battle and they have to be winning the trade. Or they certainly can't be seen to be getting pantsed on trade. And I think that's part of the reason why we have these blockages. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm 100% with you. It's a yeah, it's a sport in itself. The the trade and draft period, and and if your club is heavily involved, yeah, it becomes rabid. The coverage is insane. The rumor mill is insane. The yeah, the posturing and and the, the trades going down to the last couple of minutes of what is the longest period of time. Yeah, it has. It's got ridiculous, but it's not going to get any better because we. We're going to publicise it more and more. I've got a radical idea to fix that issue with Trade Week in terms of its length. And that is, make it longer. <laughs> start it Start it like that. you could start a trade at 6pm on grand final night and you can continue to trade right up until the end of the draft. And you can trade anyone and anything under the current rules. That is, you can still trade draft picks one year in advance. You can't trade, you can't trade them five years in advance or anything like that. I've not, I haven't got a problem with that. But just don't have a trade period. Just an open, like, six-week window. And then things will get done when they're ready to get done, but they won't be this... There'll, there'll of course, be a hurry at the end. There is in all, all the American sports, because they all have trade deadlines... And also, you know, parts of, you know, once you get to a certain part of the season, these are in season trade deadlines. It's like, no, no, this is your group from here on in. But they have in season trades. They have, you turn up to a game. It's just like, no, no, you, you, I know, I know you think you're, you play for Philadelphia, but you've got to catch a play to Milwaukee. I think, I think AFL players are reasonably look, well looked after out of that, that we just can't have. No, no, no. Um, you need a good four weeks before you go to preseason to know where you're going to be going to preseason training. So very interesting uh, just theory. do it for it's it would be the whole two months actually because the, tra- the the draft's right at the end of November now so you get 
like from the end of September to the end of November, there's a two-month free-for-all, and things just happen when they happen. There certainly isn't a situation where on trade deadline day, the AFL sort of goes out to lunch till 3 p.m. so no one can lodge a trade at 11 o'clock in the morning so we can have this, this you know, monsoon of trades right in prime time. <laughs> that killed me. It killed me. Oh. Especially <laughs> as, like, someone who was not so avidly into trade weeks this year because Collingwood added Darcy Cameron and and uh, and moved James Aishon, but, you know, there was very little noise, really. Um, beyond our bulging salary cap, I suppose. But yeah, God, it just went on and on, and and yeah, that the last day, it's a circus. I don't mind. I don't mind that theory. Uh, I suppose anything to just calm the rumor mill and yeah, sort of calm the circus might be nice. By the way, regarding Collingwood's bulging salary cap, we'd be Sinclair would be quite happy to take Jordan to go off you for like a future second. That'd be fine. I think that's a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> future, a future second and you'll just pay him, what, 1.8? Oh, yeah. Maybe you can pay a bit of his salary too. That'd be... <laughs> Actually, uh, it's, I, um, it, it's, not, it's not St Kilda throwing out 1.8 to uh, every footballer in the league. It's North Melbourne, who, despite doing so, can't land one to save himself. I mean... Yeah, I mean, they sort of landed last year. They landed Pollock and Hall, and I'm missing one of them. I feel like it was three. Pittard from Port Adelaide, they yeah. landed it. Yeah, and I think we discovered Pollock was a nice player on a good team. And the Pollock, other two, Pollock, Pittard, not so much. Pretty, they had pretty good years, but they, but they, like, they were never, ever going to be, you know, they were throwing money at some, some excellent talent, but like insane money. At Josh Kelly, an insane money at Geordie Degoe ahead of like the competition catching up to how good he was, minus Collingwood. And, yeah, they, and Dustin Martin and Andrew Gaff. There you go. So it, it, it happened again and again. <laughs> They've regrettably not landed any of them. Do you know what to put that down to? What? Well, why, why is no keen on that kind of money? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it's... They they were coached by one of the Scott brothers. Is is it hereditary? <laughs> People seem to want to go to Geelong, but apparently it's the surfing and the lifestyle. It's not it's not getting coached by Chris Scott. But I don't know. I'm I'm spitballing. I've no idea. They have sort of the facilities they, out. Like it's it's a nice place down on Arden Street. You know, North Melbourne's a nice place to be. Yeah, and there's a huge narrative. There's a huge narrative of St Kilda have sorted their uh, accommodation out, so now they're attractive. So what well, that work for North Melbourne? They got their, you know, stuff sorted out before St Kilda did. It's uh, it's an interesting one, but it's like once once you know three or four names don't go, suddenly there's a smell about the place. Yeah, but I mean that that, that I mean that. That, again, Singular sort of turned it around, and we were in the market for the same sort of players there, and certainly the market for Kelly uh, a couple of years ago when we had like pick seven and eight. So, and I think I think we're in the gaff in a big way, and that that was a that was an absolutely great example of players of of people following a club underrating someone because 
Gap, Gap was just, his numbers were so incredibly consistent. You know, it was just like bank on 25 disposals at elite efficiency. And you yeah. guys were like, well, he's not damaging or anything like that. And it's just like, you know, you hit yourself <laughs> in the head sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So we've done things differently for the first, for the most of the podcast so far. Now we're going to surrender to group think and do the things the same as everyone else. Who won and lost trade period? <laughs> I like. Is it left of, Is it left field to go? I like what the doggies did. I don't um, think so. I think everyone thinks they got Keith and Bruce, and if they perform to capacity and keep everyone on the park, they're going to be top four. Yeah, there's uh, sort of out of nowhere. You know, the beginning of this year, we were asking ourselves, uh, "Where are the Bulldogs?" You know, and they and they weren't playing very good footy, and they dropped that game to the Gold Coast, and all of a sudden, you know, it was this pretty spectacular fall from grace for a relatively young list when they won the flag with some, you know, aging superstars who had since given the game away or, you know, fallen off a cliff. And we were just wondering, you know, what's going on at this footy club? And then it just, it sort of turned. Middle of the year, their fortunes seemed to change by throwing uh, Dunkley back on the ball and he exploded into all Australian contention. McRae and Bontempelli round out, you know, another excellent midfield. If we're talking about West Coast, you have to rate the Bulldogs pretty highly. And they add a piece at either end to support, you know, guys like Norton who uh, were sort of doing too much for a young footballer but showing plenty all the same. Keith, I really liked. Wherever he ended up, I thought, because, I mean, the clear loser of trade period is Alex Keith's former club. And the Western Bulldogs have just done some nice little moves there while keeping their first-round pick. So pick 13 stays at the kennel and they bring in a couple of really good bookends. Really solid, if not the tallest blokes in the world. Both of those players will be best 22 and will make them better. And that's, that's a great, that's a great trade period. I would be very interested in seeing odds of better, better than 30 to 1 on a West Coast Western Bulldogs grand final next year. That I would like. And here's the comparison for the Bulldogs historically. 2016 Bulldogs is 2008 Hawthorne. Okay. And you think about the 2009, 2010, and then they've come back in you know, 2011. Hawthorne were once again top four. Bulldogs once again finals this year at the three-year mark. So that would be my suggestion for how they're, how they're tracking. Comparison. It, it, it lacks a buddy and a rough head, but so will every. Norton's a very good player, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I can have them on the brink of a repeat or anything like that. Hawthorne side ended up producing, but um, but the age profile is right. They got there too soon, the way that Hawthorne did, and and yeah, I they, they've they've done some nice things. They'll be better. They'll be better, and and maybe that does have them pushing for top four. Hmm. Um, Have you got a winner and a loser? I have some thoughts. Obviously, Adelaide entered the trade period in a bad spot, and it's sort of were set to fail in terms of were set up to be one of the big losers of the trade period by the time trade period started. 
you know, it's just they were in a situation where here's a whole bunch of players who are out of contract and want to leave, and what's the best we can do? So I can sort of see that. I actually, I would have liked to see Brisbane maybe be a little bit more proactive. Maybe see, obviously they tried and failed to get Jamie Elliott. So, you know, you're going to win some, you lose some, but I would have liked to see them more active. From a rebuilding point of view, I think Fremantle have a pretty good hand now. I think they got a pretty good hand at St Kilda for Brad Hill. And I'm not suggesting, like some others, that you know St Kilda got bent over for that trade because I think you know he's a guy who's an established player and was had a very good year and has won three premierships. Go and get him, you know. So, and you've still got to. You, it's all well and good to have pick six or whatever they start with. You still got to, you know, get production that you expect from pick six, and you'll get that from, you know, the players who you turned pick six into. So you didn't just, you know, you got Hill and you got Howard. I think that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, they definitely, they definitely didn't get bent over. I thought that that decision to walk away with pick six and and deal for those two picks was was very intelligent. Hmm. I think I think North Melbourne getting you know they didn't do a lot but they I think they they win that trade but GWS is the point now where they just sort of don't care who gets squeezed out if they're not you know first team regular players. Spot on. See, Bonner was one I wouldn't have minded depending on what what it costs getting him down to Collingwood seemed like a free hit and when we were talking about getting Josh Jenkins I thought that Jonathan Patton a fit Jonathan Patton might be a better fit. If you're going to get him for a pick in the 50s, so I don't mind that from Hawthorne, who have just sneakily added a, a number one draft pick each year of the last two. And if they get if they get a similar amount of games out of Patton this year that they got out of Scully last year, they are laughing. Yeah. So here's a team that couldn't afford to lose trade week, and I think I'm not happy with what they did. This is Melbourne. Okay, they got Langdon in, and that's fine. Is he necessarily better or worse than someone like Stretch, who they've just delisted? He's a he's a good ordinary footballer. Pick swap with North Melbourne will be disastrous for them if they're bad again, because then North Melbourne will end up with like a top five pick, and Melbourne have got two picks this year. Which you know, if you, if you believe what you know you've heard, they're probably they might get back into the first round next year if GWS come to the party with 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 a pick trade, but if they go to this draft with pick eight and no future first for next year, that is completely rolling the dice. And I think we all had some fun with the Carlton Adelaide trade from last year as the season went on and didn't end up too bad for Carlton. Carlton got a bit of stick for not getting the Martin deal done, but that still remains to be seen whether that's a problem. And the Papley deal. But, uh, you know, I tend to agree with you. Yeah. I tend to agree with you. The uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily sure if Papley's a, a great fit for Carlton in terms of what they need, or and we haven't seen Sydney scream, you know, a, a team that can make some players look pretty good, considering how they play and how competitive they've been over a long period of time. But I, I do think the winner is the, I think I think you know generally I think I'd agree with you that the Bulldogs are the winners and Adelaide are the losers but they there was very little that they could do entering the trade period so without a coach I mean that's the other thing we, we didn't say I mean, how are you supposed to entice, entice anybody to come along and play for your footy club mm. that that 
it's spectacular what's happened down there. Uh, like it's 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 Essendon and Peptide spectacular. Except that Adelaide were in a better position when it all went down. Now Essendon have been a middling club for a long time. Um, the worst thing that happened in the immediate term was that Joe Watson had to give back a Brownlow after after the whole drug saga. But Adelaide go on a pre-season camp, you know, having been favourites in a grand final and fallen off the face of the... Yeah, and almost entirely of their own making with all due respect to uh, what Richmond did to them on grand final day. It just, it just how they've reacted and it's now a cautionary tale of what not to do with modern athletes in a in a setting like that. Spot on. Some of the, it's it was nowhere near Shane Strimple and Robert Walls in Brisbane in the early nineties, but here we are. You know, it, it's entirely ruined. And it's funny what those what those moment zeros are for the breaking of football clubs and the breaking of playing lists. You know, what's the moment where they snap and it's never the same and they're and they're sort of there are players who can make it at that club, but as a, as a collective, that's it. They're done. You have to you have to move people on. And Adelaide have done that now, but I just don't. Their list profile is still, you know, they could things go badly for Adelaide this year. They could very easily finish last, and it yeah they that is something that Adelaide have they've never encountered that. That is a, that is a supporting group that have been, been supporting the club for thirty years. I don't think they've ever finished bottom three. So, you know, we've seen every yeah, other club right. during that period have a turn down there. You know, Essendon have won a wooden, wooden spoon. Well, yes, they have won a wooden spoon and finished bottom two, I think, one or two more times. Every other club's had a turn down there except the Crows. And we'll just see what happens when to the Crows fans when the going gets tough. And um, I'm, I think that's worrying for them. Same, and it's a tough gig for uh, Matthew Nix to walk into. I don't know what his coaching style is like, but I think he wants to bring a lot of the happy, harmony, 2016 beverage, 2017 dimmer, 2018 bucks kind of vibe along and uh, see if he can't make it a happy place to play. I think that would help, but I think the administration needs to play, start playing the expectation game in pretty soon. And then the thing is, you've got that aged group. You know, you've got a, a senior group. You know, we've seen it at clubs when they get told the hard truth. It happened at my club. You know, going up to guys like Tex Walker and uh, Bryce Gibbs and those type of older players and saying, look, guys, you know, barring a miracle, you're not winning a premiership at this club. It's we are we are on the premiership club as far away as you can get. And. We'd really love it if you stick fat and, you know, if you love the club and you have the right attitude, then you can be part of something special, but you're not going to be part of it throughout the whole process. And that's that's a difficult needle to thread for Adelaide at the moment in terms of the expectation game. Because if you, but if you don't manage it, it will hit you like a truck and that can often be worse. Yeah, I mean, the... All the favourite sons that exited St Kilda following that era. Are we looking? Are we looking ahead to another mass exodus at the end of 2020? Because some names remained, but some names 
that were being brought up in the lead up to trade week, you know, Brad Crouch, Rory Laird, some of their like genuine AA quality guys were also contemplating walking. And it's only going to take one bad year if Matthew Nix, you know, does sort of guide them to their first bottom three finish in 30 years. Maybe Rory Laird and, and Brad Crouch seek winning again. Fair enough. Now, the next cab off the rank in terms of the AFL off-season is the fixture release, which I think is sometime next week. Any requests from a Collingwood point of view other than, you know, the usual two interstate games a year, 205 <laughs> games at the MCG? Oh, wait, that's Richmond. Um, <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of flexibility in all seriousness with the Collingwood schedule. You're locked into 14 games at the MCG, three games at the Docklands, so, and then pretty much the rest are interstate trips. So, is there anything you haven't seen as a Collingwood supporter in a while that you'd like to see? An interstate team that hasn't come to Melbourne recently to play Collingwood or something like that? A Friday night out of the box, something different? I don't think so. You know, I, I'm going to request that no matter what comes out in that fixture, that opposition club supporters keep their mouth shut about it from a Collingwood perspective and worry about what they have to do uh, in order to win the flag because it will be what it will be. Chances are we'll have a tough draw because we finished in the top four, so we'll play a bunch of teams who are up there with us. That's the way That's the way it's weighted. And then alongside that, we'll probably play Carlton, who I think will be better. Um, we'll probably play them a couple of times. We'll probably play Essendon a couple of times, and that can always go one way or the other. But chances are the other, you know, double meetings are going to be Geelong and GWS and West Coast and Richmond and clubs like this and it'll be a really tough draw and and staying in the top four is getting really hard to do. Um, I, so, think, I think I think Richmond and Collingwood are pretty... Uh, Richmond, sorry, and West Coast are pretty safe bets for double-ups for Collingwood. I think it'll be one out of Carlton and Essendon and I think you played Essendon twice this year so I wouldn't be surprised if it's Carlton next year. I think you only played them once this year, and maybe the Cats, but that gives there's a there's a there's a limit to Geelong's fixture flexibility if you play Geelong twice because they have to play a game at uh, one of their home games at the MCG has to be against you guys. So unless they send you down the highway, much to the chagrin <laughs> of Scott Pendlebury with his quote of the year. <laughs> well, I, I have been down there as a Collingwood supporter back in the day, sat in a nest of cats, and I think we got rolled by three points having led all day, if I recall. We weren't much chop at the time, and um, Tony Shaw took the, the Collingwood huddle down to the Collingwood cheer squad, as, you know, the 50-odd Collingwood people who were at the ground for, like, get a three-quarter time rev up from the 50 or so people. <laughs> and the Cats coach just took, did the same and followed suit. And the whole of the cat, the cattery just exploded with noise and we were never going to win after that. And I thought, it was, Tony, perhaps you're not cut out for this caper. That, that was 1999, I think it was the last time you were down there. And I think you had... You weren't winning many games that year. So but I think... Shalong had won the first five games that year, then lost nine in a row, and then beat you guys. So, 
That sounds did, about right. And you did exactly the same thing the next year. You won the first five, then lost the next nine, and then lo- and then beat the team that finished on the bottom of the ladder. So, yeah. which was which was St Kilda in two thousand. Um, thank, thank, thank you, Andrew, for reminding Andrew. Uh, <laughs> um, I uh, I rolled into into school in in uh, in the year two thousand. That first year under Malthouse and Josh Fraser and mate, I was cocking super the Josh. For those first five weeks, you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't shut me up. And then we lost nine in a row. So thought bugger this and 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 went to visit my nana in Ireland. In, in July when Collingwood did not win a game of football for about eight years in a row. Fair enough. My uh, my 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 requests uh, for St Kilda would probably be, in terms of home games, just, you know, if if we play on a Sunday, 110 and not 440. So that, uh, you know, coming from where I'm coming from, 110, I get, we all get home in time for dinner. So 440, boys don't come at all. So... Yeah, there's a fixture just, request, actually. Get rid of 440 altogether. It just have them wrong. in Perth and Adelaide. Play 11 of them, in, you know, half of them in Perth, where it's 140 or 240, depending on whether daylight saving is started or not, ended or not. And the other half in Adelaide, where the ground is a two-minute crawl from the middle of the city, and you can walk to the airport, the town's that small. So just play them all there. 440 at the G... Does not know if it's Arthur or Martha. It can be a very pleasant time to watch the football if it's like round one on a Saturday uh, Saturday at four forty. It can be you get because the March weather it's usually not cold yet, and you get that nice twilight. But yeah, I mean, I've been to a few four forties at uh, the MCG in J- July, and you also it's like nine thirty, ten o'clock before I get out to the Punter Mansion, and oh, I'm gonna get up in five hours and go to work. And it's just death. So horrible. They will pay attention to me. Well, well that's yeah. The, the hundreds of thousands of people who aren't going to the races, even if they don't pay attention to you specifically, the AFL, they'll have to listen to all those people who didn't go to the spring carnival and rather listen to this particular podcast. Yeah, and certainly the hierarchy of the AFL, all of them, none of them are going to the races. That's just not their. It's not their jam. So not their cup of tea. Actually, uh, one quick story. Did you hear that in last year's spring carnival, Jordy Degoe, the the Collingwood footballers gave him a challenge of trying to get into as many tents as he could on um, on one particular race day. So he was going from from uh, tent to tent, and the only thing he could say was his own name to get in. <laughs> <laughs> he got into about he got into about fifteen tents. Not a problem. I think that'd be great if that same rule was applied to like the people who write the gossip columns and take the photos of everyone that appears in like the glad pages of the Herald Sun on the day after the race. So just the photographers can just have to go from, you know, tent to tent. They can only say their name. They can't say what they're doing. They're just like, <laughs> and they don't wear identification. They just have to take photos and it's how long they can go until they get the living suitcase beaten out of them by someone. That yeah. it, that would be entertainment. That's a sport. That that's got Olympic potential. <laughs> Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. Well, we're going to make another podcast happen, probably after the draft. And I think we need to keep give the people what they want. So I think some stage before the start of next season, we're going to have to do like a historical issues football pod. 
and we're also going to, have to talk about the cricket. So I think we'll be chatting a lot over the summer months. Cameron McDonald, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Good on you, Pana. And we'll catch you next time on It You Go Without Saying. <laughs>